Well, good morning again. Um, I didn't hear Steve's announcement, so if I repeat what he said, I'm sorry. First of all, just a reminder, next week, one service. So if you show up at 1030, you'll just get the leftover coffee, all right? That'll be it. We're just doing a single service next week at 9 o'clock, all right? Second, um, at the end of this service, we want to take the chairs down so we can be set up for the Red Cross on Tuesday. Did he mention that? All right, so if you can, a few of you can hang around and help stack the chairs against the wall. We'll be ready for, for, for Tuesday when the Red Cross comes in and they use this area to do all their blood drives. So I'm wearing my sneakers today as a prophetic symbol, and that is that we have to move fast through the sections we're going to be in today. Um, we, we are seeking to do the book of Exodus, which is 40 chapters, in 17 weeks. So we're moving quickly in some areas, and today's one of those. We're going to be looking at nine of the ten signs or wonders. Many of you would know them as the plagues. We're going to be looking at nine of the ten signs or wonders from the book of Exodus that are going to take us from chapter 7 all the way through the end of chapter 10. So that's four chapters, six, uh, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Last time I did math, that adds up to four, all right? So we are glad that you were here. I, I'm hoping you'll grab a Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. If you brought your own Bible, it's great, and your book of Exodus is toward the front of your Bible. If you use the one underneath your chair, you're going to find our text today beginning on page 50. You know, every once in a while, I get somebody who writes a comment on their card saying, I, I wish you just project the scriptures, right? And, and I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of resistant. Because I think it's helpful for you to actually pick up the Bible and have it in your own hands. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd be, we, we are prepared to give you one. We have lots of Bibles that we keep around exactly for that purpose. And we'd love to give you one. But, um, but I, I think there's real value just having it in your own hands. Just Let me use this example, and I know it breaks down. But just like I think it's better for your kids to go outside and play than just to play the video game inside, right? You know, I think there's some value to actually having it in your hands. And so um, we're going to move quickly today. And... And just a little bit of backstory as we get to our place today. God has been at work orchestrating Moses' life for 80 years, right? There's very few of us who can relate to that because none of us, very few of us are 80 years of age in here this morning, right? But he's been working in his life for 80 years to get him to this point. And, and for the most part, there's been some deliverance for Moses, but there's been a lot of downside, and he's been experiencing that downside lately. After his encounter with God at the burning bush, he came back to Egypt and initially he had some success with the Israelites being, yeah, let's go, I'm ready to get out of here kind of thing. And then it just went off a cliff. And for the most part, he feels defeated, he feels inadequate, and he's whining, okay? He's just whining to God. He does it at the beginning of chapter 6, and he, and he does it again at the end of chapter 6, where he says, God, you got the wrong guy. I still don't speak any better than I used to. The Israelites won't even listen to me. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? you got the wrong guy, etc. Just let me go back to my sheep, right? And it's in that context that we pick up with chapter 7. So what I want to do is I want to read the first 13 verses of chapter 7, and then I want to summarize the, um, the nine signs and wonders, the nine plagues that take place after that, and then we'll go back and draw some insights out for us today. Because our objective through this whole thing, and you can see it in our sermon series title, is that as we look at the book of Exodus, not only do we see God doing in history, giving us a, a template 
for what he's going to do spiritually in Jesus Christ, which is to deliver us and give us redemption and freedom and new life, just like he redeems the Israelites from Egypt and brings them into the promised land. God, God's going to do that. He's going to set us free by his divine sovereign activity. But what he does physically, historically in the book of Exodus, he's going to do spiritually for us in Jesus Christ. But we also see that their story is our story. The struggles that they have and walking with God and figuring things out and trusting God and obeying and et cetera, it just speaks to us. And we're going to see that very clearly, I think, today in the text that we're in. So let me just read verses 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 for us, and then we'll jump into the rest of the points that flow from it. So again, Moses is whining. He says, you know, you know and he said, I, you know, I'm the wrong guy. He says, so, you know, I'm, I'm a poor speaker. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And this is what God says in verse 1 of chapter 7. The Lord answers Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to come back to that. And multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put out my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And we're going to look at nine of those ten acts of judgment in just a minute. The Egyptians will know that I'm Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron, they did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you to perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. It will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded Aaron threw down a staff before Pharaoh and his, official, um, and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, right, the wise men who are his counselors, if you will, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Now, we're not going to get into this today, but sometimes I, you know, I hear around that, you know, well, you know, there's good in the world, but evil is not really good. There, there, there are evil forces, you know, there's a spiritual warfare going on. There is a prince of darkness who works through, and there's a way where people can tap into that and have some form of power, and we see that here. Through their occult practices, they're able to mimic the miracle that God does through Aaron's staff, and, it, and, and their same staffs turn into serpents. And it's something that we need to take clearly, but we're also going to see in this next phrase that there's a limit to all of this. So each one threw down his serpent, and it became a serpent. Each one threw down a staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. That's, that's kind of an ominous sign, right? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fact of the matter. You know, when it really comes down to it, the power of God's going to win out over the power of evil. And that's historically how human history is going to end. You know, and, and the imagery I have in my head, some of you see the, the internet thing where this snake swallowed an alligator, 
Did you, you guys see that? And then what, what it looked like? To, uh, kind of the imagery I have here, right? He swallows up all the snake, and you've got this bloated snake, right? Can't, they can't move. But Aaron's staff swallowed all their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he didn't listen to them, as the Lord had said. So right out of the gate, God performs a miracle in the presence of Pharaoh. Aaron's staff turns into a snake, a serpent, a symbol of the power of Egypt that is mimicked by his own sorcerers, if you will, magicians, and yet God's serpent consumes all the others, showing that God is actually the one who's the Almighty. He's the one who's going to win in this whole journey. But then the journey begins, right? The challenges go on. So God's objective is still to free the Israelites. And so he begins to work to deliver them. And we have nine out of the ten plagues that we're going to look at today. Now, the number ten has the idea of completeness, fullness to it. And, and you know, we don't see that specifically in Scripture, but when you look and study the, the kind of the idea, number seven is the idea of perfection. The idea of ten is the idea of completeness, like you have the Ten Commandments, a complete kind of word to us, that kind of idea. And, and here you have, so we're going to look at nine out of the ten, and we're going to let Pastor Steve complete the series next week, right? And But the very first thing out of the gate is that God takes the life source of Egypt and he strikes it. Because if the very first plague that comes up, and this is in your handout, on the back side of your handout for today, these are all listed for you, along with a number of other references that you may want to hold on to. The very first thing that happens is that the Nile is turned into blood. So this river, which is the life source of Egypt, it is what provides the irrigation, provides them with the water that they need, those kinds of things. The, the most essential element needed to survive in the Middle East is water, and theirs become so contaminated that they're not able to drink it. Now, it tells us that the, 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 the water turned into blood, right? And it's an interesting journey in here because, you know, if you read through the text, and I know a lot of you are reading a chapter a day and going back and repeating, so you're really coming to master the book of Exodus. You've picked up on this already. But you notice that a little later in the story, when, it, when they... When, when the water turns to blood, and the only way that the, Israel, the, the, the Egyptians were able to get water that they could drink was that they moved back from the river a little bit, and they dug a well, and they let the land filter the water so that when it emerged into the well, it had run basically like through a sand filter, which is the way they actually use our water treatment plants. They use huge sand filters, among other things, and they had purified the water enough that they could drink it. Now, I'm, I, you know, my number one objective in college was to avoid science, right? I, I, I you know, one of my things, I never want, even though I, I did well and all that kind of stuff, I just never wanted to have a lab class, right? So I don't really know much about anything. But I know that if you filter blood through sand, it's still coming out as blood on the other end. So the imagery you get here, I think, and, and I think this is very important, a, a, an important piece for us to pick up, at least as we look at our own lives, is that the Nile River right, is like 4,300 miles long. It's like 50% longer than the Mississippi River. So put it in perspective, the Nile River could start in Boston, go all the way to San Diego, and then come back to like Oklahoma. I mean, it's a very long river. So it actually starts 
in the area of Africa where we travel every year to Rwanda, Uganda, that area. Some of the tributaries of the Nile start there, and then it flows northward all the way through, up through Ethiopia, into Egypt, and then it eventually empties into the Mediterranean. And it's over 4,300 miles. Now, one of the things that happened on occasion was that it would rain so hard in certain parts of the of the journey of the Nile, that it would literally wash the red clay that was dominant in the land into the river. And literally the river would just become like a flowing sludge, right? It was just, and so, and, and I've been in Rwanda before where they have these huge downpours, and then when we're driving home later in the day and you're looking at a river that was relatively decent looking in the morning, now it's just like, just, it looks like you could walk across it. It look, just looks like mud. It's just brown and dark and thick, and it's like, there's no way you could drink that. And, it, and that's exactly what happens here. And, and the reason I point that out for us before we get into the rest of them is that there are two types of miracles that God uses in this text for us. And I think God uses throughout the Old Testament. And I think he uses in our lives. One form of miracle is what you see with the serpent being thrown onto the ground. and turn, I mean, the staff being thrown onto the ground, turning into a snake. That's, that's just not normal. That's not a physical reality. That is God superseding over the way the creation works to do what he wants to do. It's a miracle in its fullest sense, right? We're going to see that, I think, at the end of, of, the, of these nine as well, where there's three days of darkness on the land. That's just not normal. God does something special. It's a miracle, an intervention to suspend the laws of nature. But there are other ways in which God uses natural phenomenon with divine timing and intensity to achieve his purposes. And, and, I, and that's what I see in a number of these, right? I mean, having, a play, having frogs drawn, drawn out and some of the flies and that kind of stuff, these were not necessarily unique experiences to, to Egypt, but their intensity and timing was divinely controlled, and they were miracles. God uses his creation to communicate his message and do his work. I mean, you know, it's no coincidence that when Aaron holds his staff out over the Nile River, then inflows the undrinkable water from upstream, right? It's not, and, and in fact, you're going to see in some of the, one of the other occasions as you read through it, you know, with, with, the, with the plague of the frogs, and, you know, um, uh, Pharaoh says, you know, ask God to deliver us from these, and, 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 Pharaoh, and so Moses says to him, says, well, when do you want that done? In other words, he wants Pharaoh to know that it just didn't happen, but that God is in control of all the circumstances. And i got to tell you, those kinds of miracles happen in our lives as well. There, there are events that occur that are clearly God just, just, just overcoming the laws of nature. You know, you pray for people and they are healed from incurable diseases. That's just a miracle. God suspends the laws of nature to do his work. But there's other ways in which God just uses the circumstances to communicate and to do his work and do his purposes. And I got to tell you, I think there's a lot of times that you and I miss those in our lives. Where God is orchestrating relationships and circumstances and experiences, conversations and etc. And we just write them off to coincidence as opposed to being the divine control where God is doing the miraculous in our lives as he shares his work. So out of the gate they start, and the Nile turns to blood. And then right out of that, they have the plague of the frogs. 
You kind of get the association that the frogs didn't like being in the Nile with all the, with, with, with all the undrinkable water, so they came out of it. And you'll notice in your handout that there are three asterisks there for the, the, the first miracle of the staff turning into a serpent and then that of the red water, of the, of the blood Nile and of the frogs. And that's because the magicians, the occult practices, are able to mimic that same impact. And so those are duplicated by... by by uh, Pharaoh and his um, uh, Pharaoh's magicians, and and it's interesting though when you look at it. Not only did Aaron's staff eat all of their serpents, but you also get the idea that you know if 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 they were really powerful, wouldn't you think that their miracle would be all right? We're going to turn the Nile back into regular water, yeah. right? But instead, they're just you know what? It's a bad situation. Let's just make it work worse. You know, we'll just turn more with something. You know, you got plenty of frogs running around the land. Well, let's just add some more to it, right? You know, instead of issuing them back. So they're, they're making the problem worse. They're not making it better because they're powerless to deliver. They can only tear down. They can't build up. But then, the, but then they get to where they cannot match. And that flows the rest of the seven for us that we're looking at today. And it, it is not a good list, right? That, so you start out with the the Nile turned to blood. All the water turned to blood. Then you have the frogs that come, right? Any, any, we any frog lovers in here? Frogs are, are, are they're kind of gross, right? Uh, you know, my father's from Missouri, right? And, and so one time I was out there, I was like 14 years old or something, and my older cousins decided they were going to go frogging like at midnight right? And so we weren't smart enough. They weren't smart enough. I wasn't smart enough to take like a basket with us, right? So we're out in these ponds, and I got frogs stuck in my socks and in my pockets and dropping them down your shirt. And I got, they are nasty animals. They're not the kind of things that you want to wake up in the morning and have one sitting on your chest looking at you going, cricket, cricket, you know, whatever. I mean, and, and the whole land is just overrun with them. And then when they die, they stack them up in huge piles, and then the flies come in. The gnats. That's, that's the next place, the gnats. I, we don't know exactly what flies they're, they're remembering, what, what they're referring to here. What, what stands out to me is when I was a kid, you know, my grandparents had a small cabin uh, on a lake in southern New Hampshire, and we always had to do the spring cleanup to get ready. And we always did it in May. So you're raking these wet leaves along the stone wall with the property next to this, whatever. And there are just mayflies everywhere. You know, they're flying up your nose and in your ear and they're getting in your mouth. And, you know, sometimes later, you know, you're getting the wax out of your ears and out comes a fly with it, you know. And, you know, it's just, they're just flies everywhere, just, you know. And then from the gnats, it goes to flies. You know, we don't know, again, it, probably mosquitoes, but we don't know for sure. So, I mean, it's like double dipping, right, first from gnats to, to mosquitoes. And, and, and it's just unbearable for the people. Right, and it's just awful. I mean, have you? Some of you do a little trail running, right? Or you do like a rail trail, and sometimes you're going down, and you can just see this cloud of bugs, right? That you've got to run through. Imagine if the whole land is like that. There's no place to go from it. They didn't have screens, right? And, you know, there was you know that kind of idea. I mean, it, it's just bad, you know. I mean, I, I realized when first time I went to Africa to Burkina Faso, we'd see these guys sleeping, and they and they had blankets all the way over them. I'm like, how can you sleep that way? You know, I, I can't sleep that way with the covers all the way over your head. And it's because they don't have any screens, and so that's how they kept the bugs off them when they sleep at night. And they just got used to it. They were doing it on the plane because it's the only way they could sleep, right? Because flies, you know? So it goes from the gnats to the flies, right? And then from there, and you're following along in your list, you know, um, 
They go from, um, from the flesh to the death of the livestock. Now, again, if, if you want to see God orchestrating circumstances, the bloody water forces the frogs out. They rot. That draws the flies. It draws the gnats. They transmit the disease to the camels, the horses, the donkeys, the cows, and the sheep in the field, and they're dying. God is just wreaking havoc on the economy of the Egyptians, bringing devastation to them. And so they, they, they died. And then, then, to make matters worse, now they got all full of bug bites and everything else, God has Moses throw some furnace soot up in the air, and everybody in the land gets boils. Right? Any of you really had poison ivy ever really bad before? I mean, it's the only skin disease I really got, but there were times when I was kids that I had it from the tip of my toe to the tip of my head everywhere. And you know what? There were moments I thought I'd be better off dead. It is just awful, right? And, and I, there was a time when I, when I was a kid, we were out in Missouri. My mother developed a couple big boils on her, on her arm. And, I mean, she was deathly sick. I mean, you know, deathly sick. You know, when we, and I was like eight or something, and I was really worried that she wasn't going to make it. I mean, she could barely walk. It was that bad, you know? And, and so, you know, so it goes from the death of the last girl. Now, now it's inflicting directly on them. And it's so bad that even Pharaoh's magicians are so covered in it that they're not able to perform any duties at all. God is pushing back the darkness and striking the darkness as you go along. Then you get to, we just got a couple more to go. Then you get to the hail. I mean, now we're up to what? Number seven now. So there's six rounds of this from the Nile all the way through the boils. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give the people a break. I'm going to warn them that this is coming. So he sends Moses into Pharaoh and he says, you, you, you tell them tomorrow the hail's coming and they should get all of their livestock, get all of their people undercover because anything that's left outside is going to die. Some of them, listen. The rest of them, even though they forgot about one, two, three, four, five, and six, say, yeah, you know, I'm not listening to them. Not, strike me dead if I ever listen to a Hebrew. Tell me what to do. I'm not bringing my people. And, and their servants and their livestock is killed by the hail. That also destroys a lot of the agriculture. But there's some crops that hadn't grown yet. And so God sends the locust as the next one to devour everything that's left. Right? I told the first service that when we first moved into our house, there was a big garden along our upper driveway. And for the first few years, we started gardening. And I discovered something about myself. I am really good at growing weeds. You know, and but we, we plant these things like the tomato plant, and you get out there, and you know, you, you'd be gone for a weekend, you come back, and there'd be nothing left but the stalk. The bugs would just eat it totally, right? I mean, just all the leaves were gone, the buds, everything, you know. And 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 it was like, and that's why there's grass there now, right? You know, I, I just I'm not doing this anymore. But but you imagine the whole land, your entire crop just being taken out by the locust of what's left, and you're desperate for it because all the rest of it's been. Killed, And then you get to the last of these, and you get to the, the, the impact of the, of the darkness, right? Where God sends darkness on the land for three days. Now, there's several things I want you to see in this before we kind of move along, right? Is that, so we know, we see that God sometimes steps in and suspends the laws of nature and does his work. Other times, God takes the laws of nature, and he clearly orchestrates it to fulfill his purposes, you and I should be looking for both types of miracles in our lives because God does those kinds of things. The second thing I want you to see is that 
in, 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 in the midst of some of this, right, God, the, the, the plagues come on where the Egyptians are, but in the land of Goshen where the Hebrews are, there is no plague. There's no flies. There's light when there's darkness in the rest of the land. So God is, God is already showing that, that he's going to redeem and lead out. He's treating them differently because one is his covenant people and the other is a group under darkness. And God is working through all of these things. And, and, and so we, we really have to struggle with that. I don't think you can really understand the book of Exodus, whether it's from even from a literary kind of academic perspective or especially from a spiritual perspective. Is what, what is God doing here in the plagues? Why? What's up with the nine plagues? What's up with the Passover? What is God's agenda, right? Is God just like a preschooler who's throwing a temper tantrum and because he can get away with it, he's just, you know, he just decides to do all these different things? Why didn't he just do like one and done, et cetera? What what is God's objective here? And, and, you know, and and I've listed in your notes, I think, several different things that emerge for us, right, from the text about why God is doing these things, right? And, And the very first thing that I tell you is that God's heart is to redeem the nations. And with that, he wants to extend his name, extend his greatness to the nations. And one of the things we see over and over again in these verses is God saying, I want the Egyptians to know that I am God. And he is trying to extend his greatness, his knowledge, the awareness of who he is. You're going to see in chapter 10 in the second verse, he says, I've been doing these things so that you're going to tell your son and they're going to tell your grandson. So this knowledge is not only known in this time, it's known for all times. So God's not only looking at it from a perspective, he's wanting more of the lands to know who he is, that he is unique. He's above all others, right? That kind of idea. But in the midst of all of that, he's also trying to communicate that that he, that that he wants it to pass on to future generations. God's heart, his passion, is to extend his, his, his knowledge. The second thing I want you to see, and, and, and let me just read a, a verse for us. In chapter 9, verse 16, you know, this is right before the plague of hail, and, and he sends Moses in to, to tell him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this hail. You need to get your people out of the land, and etc. And in verse 16, God is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, saying, However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known in all the earth. And and, and it's very much the same sentiment in chapter 10, verse 1. Go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. God's desire. Is to, is to show his uniqueness, right? If, if we wanted to back up, and again, this is why I'm wearing sneakers because we've got to move really fast, but every single one of these signs is directed at an Egyptian god. The Nile had not only a god and a goddess, but it also had a god who was, whose role was to protect the Nile and to make sure it flood, flooded every year. There was a, uh, there was a goddess who, who was symbolized by a frog who was in charge of childbearing. The, the, at the end, with the darkness, there was the god Ray who was the sun god, right? And every single aspect, God is saying, what you have thought is a god is no god at all. I'm the one who's God. Over and over again, he's wanting to display his glory, not only for the Israelites to see it, because they're living in the land of Goshen where most of this stuff isn't happening, but he's trying to show throughout the nations that when it comes to the earth, there's nobody like me because I'm the only God. Right? I am the only God. 
And that is why God is doing these things. And he's trying to display that message. He's trying to make that clear. You know, we're going to read later that when, when God takes the people through the Red Sea, that, and then they defeat the Amalekites, that fear began to tremble in all the nations because they knew that God was among them. God is preparing the nations. And then at the very end, Jesus looks at us and says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And, and, and God, God wants his glory to be displayed throughout all of the earth, and he wants to know that the whole earth to know that he is the only one in his beginning here in Egypt. And that redemption story is going to be completed in Jesus Christ in his second return. But it goes on from there. There's two other things I want you to see. These acts are also acts of judgment. They're acts of judgment. Let me just read a couple of these for you. In, in chapter 9, again, just, just over a couple pages from where we started. Look what God says. To Pharaoh, it says, you are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. So because you're doing that, I'm bringing this plague on you. It is an act of judgment on Pharaoh. There, there's, a, there's another place where, where it speaks about the fact that he fails to humble himself before God. And that humility is would be evidenced in his letting the people go, obeying what God has said to him. And, and there's a couple places where Pharaoh even says to Moses when he's in the midst of the throes of the thing, saying, you know what, I've sinned. Ask God to forgive me. And, and there's a sense that these acts are judgment on Pharaoh, on Egypt, for the way that they have treated the Israelites, it's their, his judgment on them for their idolatry, their lack of humility before them, through, for their disobedience. It's, it's God's judgment on them for their sin. These very same acts are also Israel's redemption. Now process that for a second. The very same acts, right, have a different impact. God has said in chapter 6, and he had said it before to, to Moses, and he says it throughout these texts. He says, I'm going to deliver these people by my mighty hand. It is by my acts. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bring my people out. I'm going to deliver them out. The very same acts of God that were judgment on Egypt were also God's redemption for Israel. And, and here's, here's what I, I, I want us to really understand. What God does in the world, what God does in our world, what God does to our circumstances, what God does to suspend the laws of nature, those things in our lives, they can be either acts of judgment or they can be acts of deliverance or redemption. Let me, let me point out, we, we, we always keep a cross on our, on our back wall, right? We want it to be prominent in our, in our services. We want to understand the reason we stand here, proclaim the truth, and the truth can set us free is because Jesus Christ came died on the cross, was buried, was resurrected, and now he's right at the hand, right hand of the Father, and it's in him. He's the only one in which there is salvation. But you know what the Scripture tells us? It says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, for some, is redemption. You go a couple verses later, it says, and he who has not believed in him is judged already. The very same events of the life of Christ become judgment in people's lives because they refuse to believe. Our, 
our standing with God, what God does in our lives, they're either going to be acts of judgment or they're going to be acts of redemption based upon how you and I respond to them. Okay? And, and, and th- this is something that you and I really ne- need to let sink into our hearts and our minds. And this is where this whole issue of the Pharaoh's hard heart kind of comes to the surface. And, and I wish we had enough time to process this all separately, but just let me bring this in. As you read through this text, every single plague is, a form, is associated with one kind of statement of that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, sometimes... It's stated like this. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not listen. Now, I would tell you, if you were asking, do I have a hard heart or not, the number one thing you have to ask yourself is, am I listening to God? Right? Am I listening to God? There are some times where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay? And you say, well, all right, so that's that's a God thing, right? And in God's sovereignty, he does make those kind of choices. It's probably a part of the scripture that some of us really struggle with. It doesn't really seem very fair that God, you know, God is, is, is making it where, where, where Pharaoh doesn't have any options, right, kind of idea. But it's, it, it's, it's God is sovereign. And what's really unfair is that any of us do have options to be redeemed where we should all experience judgment. But clearly, God is sovereign. He's in control. He's orchestrating the circumstances. And as a result of that, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Sometimes it just says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So it doesn't really assign responsibility to one or to the other. Here's the best that I can make of it. And I want to be sure I'm clear. This is what I think. It's not what God's word says, but what I think as I stand before you. Is that God is orchestrating the circumstances. He's sovereign. And Pharaoh, in his response to those circumstances, hardens his heart. In other words, what the hard heart is the result of Pharaoh's response to what God is doing in the circumstances. And I got to tell you, that's where you and I's hard heart comes from as well. You know, and, and it comes down to whether we are listening. Let me give you just, just an example. I know it's kind of getting up there kind of idea. Let me pull it down to 30 years of ministry. People experience the same event. I see different responses. Let me just give you an example. We have several people in the life of our church that the reason they came to know Christ and now are faithful followers, servants, big givers, missionary hearts, all that kind of stuff, the reason they came to know Christ is because they contracted cancer. You know, they, 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 life's flying along. They're being successful, happy. They seem in control, whatever. Boom, cancer. And, and, and their hearts got searching. And, and, and their response to that circumstance in their life led them to redemption as God worked in their lives. I got to tell you, there is as many other people who the word cancer hits into their lives, and, and, and the reaction has been, That's, if God's going to let that come to my life, he didn't take care of me, whatever, I'm, I'm out of here. And their response to the exact same circumstance becomes judgment. And our hard heart comes from our response to God's circumstantial control over our lives. And God is calling upon us to be people who respond redemptively. Because his heart is to deliver. And it all comes down to whether or not we are listening. Right? We are listening. And that leads us into one more dimension that we need to look at today. 
You know, Pharaoh doesn't give up a fight easy. You know, he's only a couple of rounds into this, and he knows that he's got the losing hand, right? He's sitting at the table and got, I got a pair of twos, right? You know, and I, I know the guy across the street, he's got a royal flush, right? You know, of all spades, you know, ending with an ace. He, he just knows he's not going to win. And on three different occasions, and I've given you the references here in the text, he's, he tries to negotiate with God through Moses. First thing he says to Moses, all right, you know, you guys can go, but just don't leave the land. I know you said you wanted to do a three-day's journey and et cetera. Just stay in the land. Just go and, and you know, just, just go to a campsite somewhere, right, inside the land and, 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 and do your worship thing. And Moses' response to him is, that's not going to work because the kinds of offerings that we need to give to God are going to be totally unacceptable to the Egyptians, and it's going to create a dynamic in your country. That's not going to work. And, and Moses is thinking that partial obedience is still disobedience. But, but Pharaoh's trying to negotiate. So a little later, as it gets even hotter, in fact, in, in one of the circumstances, just as you're getting ready for the, the locusts and that kind of stuff, even his leaders are saying to them, when are you going to wake up? Look what this guy has done to our land. He has devastated it. He's made a mockery out of every single God that we have. Just let them go. And what does Pharaoh say? Well, why don't just the men go? Just leave your wife and your families behind and all your lives. So just let, the, just let, let the, the, the men go. No, 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 no. Then he comes back later and says, well, just, just you know what? You guys can go, but just leave your herds behind. Because he knows they can't go very far without their livestock to su- support them. You know, milk and meat and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he's trying to negotiate with God, right? He doesn't really want to listen, but he knows he can't win, so he's trying to negotiate. And he's trying to say, God, you know, l- let this little bit that I'm willing to give you be enough. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of us who want to do the same thing, right? We say, God, you know, I'll, I'll do this, this, and this, but just don't touch this stuff because I like it. I, I want this in my life, right? Can I, and it does, partial disobedience is still disobedience. And, and, I, and let me say something to you that you might find a little shocking. You should be grateful. I should be grateful that God's not willing to negotiate with us. You know, we think, oh, that's not fair. It'd be better, you know, if God would just let me kind of have this part of, and take, you know, I'll give them all this, but just leave this part alone or whatever. And so, well, that, you know, but we should be grateful that God is not willing to negotiate with us because the reason why God is not willing to negotiate with us is because he has our best interest at heart. You know, again, I, I, don't, I don't want to trivialize the point with a simple illustration, but just, just, amazing, just imagine you had, a very, you had a very strong-willed child. Anybody have any of those? Yeah. Right? You've got a really strong-willed child, and this child says to you, I hate wearing my seatbelt. I don't want to wear my seatbelt. Now, you as a parent, are you going to negotiate with them and say, you know what? When we're on the interstate, you wear the seatbelt, but when we're just around town, you don't have to wear it. How many of you would go for that? Well, why not? Because it's not in your child's best interest. You would rather just blare the radio and drown out their whining and et cetera because it's not in their best interest. God doesn't negotiate with us because it's not in our best interest. The best way for us to experience freedom from slavery being delivered from the land, being redeemed and brought in relationship with God and brought into the promised land of eternal life, the best way for us to experience all that that can mean in our lives is to listen to God 
and respond to what he does in our lives redemptively. And you see that in this text. And, and I got to tell you what, I think all of us can say I struggle in that area. Uh, you know, there's some parts of what God's doing. I'm in love with that. It makes me feel good. I'm getting promoted. Make more, I got a grade with this and whatever. I feel healthy or whatever. And, and, and so I love that part. And then you get to some other part and say, you know, what is wrong with God? And, we, and, 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 we, and we're not listening. So my, my, my kind of conclusion or challenge for us today is, are we listening? Are you really listening to God? Or are you trying to negotiate with God? God is at work, no doubt about it. That work will either be redemption or judgment in our lives. It will either bless us and grow us and change us and transform us into his son or it will become a burden that will pull us back and move us farther away from God and make it harder for us to experience the gift that he's given us in Jesus Christ. It's going to be one of those two things and it's based upon how we respond. And so my question is, are you listening? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word today. Boy, there was a lot there. I really pray that, that all that are gathered here today would just take the moments, go back and read chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 in their fullness to see the dynamic come apart. But God, I am grateful that you are at work, that your work always has the potential in our lives to be redemptive. Father, I pray you give us faith today that we might listen and obey rather than to debate and to negotiate. God, thanks for being a God who still speaks. Today, give us ears to hear as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.